He would say, for example, in an age of change, we need continuity. In an age of becoming, we need an awareness of being. In a materialistic age, an age that privileges matter, we need to remember spirit. That's Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Among the many programs Gleaves runs at the Howenstein Center is the Common Ground Initiative, which provides a forum for political thinkers, cultural commentators, and historians from the left and right to explore the common ground between their political and cultural traditions. Our podcast is a part of that initiative. Also an historian by training, Gleaves has for years worked on the history of American and European conservatism. Today he discusses the life and work of one of his most influential teachers on this subject, the intellectual historian Stephen Tanser. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Most Americans seem to agree that our country is facing a kind of political and ideological realignment. The state of affairs has conservatives, as well as progressives, looking forward to future political goals, but also looking backward to the thinkers and activists, both left and right, who shaped their respective traditions. An important question to ask is whether we can or should resurrect the ideas of the past and try to apply them today. But then we should also ask whether we can learn from the mistakes and the faults of past thinkers too. Gleaves Whitney asked these questions about a major conservative thinker under whom he studied as a graduate student in history at the University of Michigan, the intellectual historian Stephen Tanser. Even in the 80s, Tanser seemed out of place as a conservative intellectual in a mostly liberal public university. But he found community among conservative thinkers of the day, William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk, for instance. Gleaves explores Tanser's effect on American conservatism from the 60s to the 80s. He also discusses the many differences between the form of conservatism that Tanser embraced and the sorts of conservatism that are prominent today. Having known Tanser for many years, Gleaves talks about the nuances of his ideas, his virtues as well as his vices, and what folks today might not understand about him. All that and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Gleaves, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Joe. You're a director, Gleaves, of the Howenstein Center, which is essentially a humanities institution at Grand Valley State University where you host dialogues and debates between thinkers on the left and right. You've worked in politics as a speechwriter for John Engler, former governor of Michigan. Before that, you trained to be an historian at the University of Michigan. This is all to say you've worked with important thinkers in politics and the academy, uh, with major conservatives as well as liberals. Yet in numerous conversations we've had, as well as in your own writing, you seem always to refer to one person as a, if not among the central figures, in your own intellectual development, uh, that is the historian Stephen Tanser. So first, I'll just ask, who was Stephen Tanser? The short answer is that he was a fierce intellect. He was certainly a contradiction to his age. The longer answer would be that he was a European intellectual historian who spent four decades in the history department at the University of Michigan. He was also a cultural critic who wrote for Modern Age and Intercollegiate Review and First Things and a number of almost polemical journals, you could say. Originally, he was a Midwesterner. Here's this uh, German kid out of the farm fields of southern Illinois. He came from a working-class family. He attended Blackburn College because that's what he could afford. Blackburn College there in southern Illinois 
uh, encourage students to work to pay off their tuition, and that's what they had to do. It was truly one of the first work-study colleges. This was before World War II. He was born, I should say, in 1923. Then he was drafted into the Army, and he was a combat veteran when he came back home. He'd earned three bronze stars in the Pacific Theater in World War II. Started working on his Ph.D. at the University of Illinois under a um, very sympathetic thesis advisor, Joseph Ward Swain, whom he writes very touchingly about in one of his essays. It really eulogizes him. And through his connections at Illinois, he ended up getting a teaching job at Michigan in 1954, defended his dissertation in 1955, and started a four-decades-long career at Michigan uh, in the history department there, and used that as a perch to also become an influential conservative thinker outside of the academy and to become part of the institutional framework of the conservative movement that was growing in the late 50s and the 60s. He was a president temporarily of the Earhart Foundation in Ann Arbor. He was a major figure in the Philadelphia Society that met every year, often twice a year in those early days in the 60s and 70s. So he led a very uh, interesting and rich life. But I, I should add that he's not just a mind. I mean, let me just say, when you ask who is Stephen Tonser, this was a man who, <laughs> we talk about work-life balance today. Well, this is a man who lived it. I mean, he was a prodigious gardener. He had a green thumb, loved his gardens. At one point, he was keeping two different gardens in Ann Arbor, and he was always hiking. He, he was going out, I mean, at, at one point, to p- help put himself through grad school, he was out as a fire lookout. He and his wife went to Idaho in the wilds up there and, you know, had to go up and down at 8,000 foot difference in elevation to get mail and groceries and that kind of thing. So he loved the outdoors. He was very much, uh, very Teutonic in that way. Somebody really loved nature. So that's more the complete man. He also was married to a, a wonderful woman, Caroline, and they had four kids. And that rounds out is a picture of who this interesting man was. You know all this in part because you you spent so much time with Tanser, and and indeed you describe your relationship with him when you were in grad school in very interesting terms. So you write that you, quote, honed your mind against the gritty stone of his. So what, what do you mean by that phrase? First of all, you're absolutely right, Joe. The opportunities I had as a graduate student to spend a lot of time with him were ample. He invited. He had a wonderful custom of inviting students to his his house there in in Burns Park, 1505 Morton. And the students would go back there with him, and Caroline will have prepared this wonderful pot roast with carrots and potatoes, and Tonser would come along and pour sherry. And I mean, it was all very wonderful. And you had the opportunity on the 25-minute walk from the central campus down through Burns Park to talk to him. It's like getting another lecture, practically. And then you had the lunch itself, where often all kinds of delightful things would be discussed, from the latest novels we were reading to uh, how to grow a particular kind of flower in this climate. And then we'd have 20, 25 minutes on the walk back to the central campus where we could continue to, to just talk about all kinds of things. So I did get to to hone my mind against the gritty stone of his mind. And... That was a phrase, actually, that he used, and he he maintained that a really high-quality education must come with a mentor with whom you can hone your mind against the gritty stone of the mentor's mind. 
even before you got the chance to, to really spend time with him, what initially attracted to you to this professor? You describe him sort of as a, as a tweedy, distant figure. I think you said that he smelled like a, a fireplace, in, even in the middle of summer. How is he different from other professors at Michigan? Because even at the time, it had a great history faculty. David Hollinger was there. What was it about Tonser in particular when you were just this young, this young student coming in? This is your first time in Michigan. What attracted you to him? There were so many things, Joe. I was somewhat aware of his articles, uh, his essays that he had written, and he was always pithy and pertinent and provocative. I mean, he just had this way with language that I found very attractive. Even from a distance, I thought he was a compelling figure. And then once I got around him, you're right, at Michigan, it was a powerhouse of intellectual history in those days. We had Jim Turner, we had David Hollinger, we had Tonser, of course, and there were others who were working very much on the cutting edge of, of the new cultural history at that time. We also had some excellent people in historiography, which of course is a part of the history of ideas as well. What attracted me to study under Stephen Tonser at Michigan was that he was a historian who sought out truly transcendent problems. He he really resisted specialization. You know, a specialist is somebody who learns more and more about less and less. And he would bypass the small issues that so many professors were working on. And he had a civilizational mission. And I love that mission. It's one of the things that I found really compelling about him and his fierce intellect. And his his intellectual task was to understand modernity and and to teach what he understood. And his ethical task was to confront modernity. And so in tandem, these two tasks comprise the civilizational mission of Stephen Tonser. I felt that going to grad school was more than just about professionalizing. It was truly to be steeped in a purpose, to do something great, something grand with, with your life. And that's very appealing to a young person. Well, I think that's that's absolutely right. That that resonates certainly. I, so what you're saying is that you were attracted, in a sense, to his sort of intellectual style and attitude, his willingness to take on big questions that have great cultural importance. What was it about his particular take on, say, the Enlightenment that was attractive to you? Not just the fact that he was so willing to take it on in its entirety and in its complexity, but what did he have to say about the Enlightenment and about modernity that was attractive to you at the time? That's a great question because you do have to step back. This is a professor of, of Western European history as well as an intellectual historian, but the bread and butter course that he taught to freshmen was Western Civ. And he had a, a way of seeing Western Civ. Now, these are my terms, but he, I think, would agree to them. But he saw Western Civ as a binary civilization. This goes way back. This, this is deep in our roots uh, as a civilization, all the way back to when the early church is asking, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And then Thomas Aquinas comes along in the 13th century and is asking, similar questions and sifting through the documents of five civilizations, weighing the truth claims of the best thinkers of five civilizations. So he saw Western civilization as having this dynamism that was really important to understanding how modernity would come about later. The dynamism was already there prior to modernity. Now, by the time you get to the Enlightenment at the end of the 17th century and the 18th century, what makes the Enlightenment so interesting is that it begins to set up a, a tension with Christendom. 
what that means, uh, and it's very important to understand this, is that the Enlightenment would be a revolutionary movement because it would establish a competing source of authority in the European mind. And that was going to change the fundamental character of our civilization. Henceforward, you know, you're not just going to have one source, but you're going to have two sources competing for intellectual and moral authority. You're going to have the ancient and medieval source of religious values that developed in Christendom in the Middle Ages, and you're going to have the modern source of secular values that developed in the Enlightenment. And, you know, Tonser would say the former was oriented to the things above and the latter to the things below. And it was the struggle between these two competing sources of intellectual and moral authority that would raise the pivotal question in the West's inner history. Tonsard would talk about the West's inner history, and that question was, what should the relation between these two sources of authority be? That's what gave our civilization such energy, such dynamism. And he thought that was a good thing. This is easy to misunderstand. A lot of People would look at Tonser and say, oh, he's just a reactionary who wants to return us to the 13th century. He's one of these Catholic redentists who want to go back in time. That's not at all true. He accepted modernity, but he insisted that it was our duty to confront modernity. And by confront, I don't mean to be just automatically hostile to it. It's not a knee-jerk reaction against modernity. It's the sense of confrontation which you you test modernity, you sift modernity. What is tearing down the dignity of the human person in modernity as opposed to what in modernity can we keep that is furthering the dignity of the human person? I've heard you use a term to describe the habit of thinking that Tanser endorsed when approaching or confronting these questions. You use the term, and forgive me, Glees, if I mispronounce this, you'll have to correct me, but um, because you know German, I, I really don't. But Well, he'll come back from the grave and strike you if you yeah. don't get it right. <laughs> I'll give it my best. It's Einfühlung. That's pretty good, Joe. Thank you. Oh, I've been practicing all morning. You used to say this in the office, and I'm, I'm sure you still do, and you always reference Tanzer when you use it. So what does that term mean, and how does it relate to the sort of approach to history that you've been describing Tanzer as having endorsed? The reason history is one of the liberal arts is that it gets us to get out of our parochial view of things. It, it encourages us to step into the shoes of another. Now, sometimes it's through a novel, you know, in an English class or a comp lit class. We'll all of a sudden be exposed to this character that we find so compelling. And it's a character we would never have had the chance to meet otherwise. But our sense of the human condition of the different types of people is expanded in this process. All Einfühlung is is sympathetic identification. That's roughly how the word is translated, although you know how these German words are. There's never the perfect translation. They always have their fine Baroque point on the, the word, these long words. But Einfühlung, in a historical sense, is being able to suspend your own self as a, as a historical creature, your consciousness as a historical creature, in this time and actually look back at a previous era, having understood as much as you can about the way of life of that era, the way of thought of that era, can you step into the shoes of a person who lived 200 years ago? Say you want to know the origins of Marxism. Can you go back to the Viennese coffee houses? Can you understand how what the reaction to, say, the Communist Manifesto was in 1848? If you can get that that frisson of discovery, that thrill of saying, okay, I get it. If I were in a Viennese 
coffee house in 1848 and had just read the Communist Manifesto, and I was interested in liberating people from poverty uh, of the immiseration of the Industrial Revolution, then I would find that this would be a very compelling argument. That's Einfühlung, and Tanzer would challenge us uh, through a host of exercises, both of a literary nature, uh, also in paintings, and in uh, source documents and intellectual history, to sympathetically identify with the people we were studying. In your response to my first question, you used an interesting phrase to describe Tanzer. You said that he was a contradiction to his age. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, it's this whole idea that he did have a civilizational mission to understand modernity, and rather than just accept it and go along with it, to confront it, to test it, to sift it. He would say, for example, in an age of change, we need continuity. In an age of becoming, we need an awareness of being. In a materialistic age, an age that privileges matter, we need to remember spirit. These are the kinds of things that he challenged us to think about, not just to totally go along with the stream, the course of modernity, but to think about it, to be critical in a very productive way, understand it through Einfühlung, sympathetic identification, but also have the capacity to criticize it in terms of whether it furthers the dignity of the human person. Does it promote the transcendentals, truth, goodness, beauty? What about modernity reveals the human condition to us in a way that that elevates us and that empowers us to make our lot in life better? Tanzer's type, the sort of old intellectual historian, was a bit out of place in the academy in the 80s, as you say, with the rise of social and cultural history. You've said that having a conversation with Tanzer was a bit like reading an Agatha Christie novel, especially when you come across names like Lord Acton, Lady Granville, Father Dollinger. Was his anachronism part of his allure? Well, is uh, that, that's funny. I, I did use that phrase that it was like reading an Agatha Christie novel. In his personal habits, Tonser was certainly very conservative. He once described himself to me as like an old house cat that was content to sit by the fire or to move about the living room wherever the sun was shining, you know, where the, the warm, cozy spots were. As he would read a book or listen to an opera or that kind of thing. But we have to separate out those personal habits, the tweed coat he always wore, that you know, the fires he would always build at home, the flowers he would always cut from his garden, and this creature of habit who would bring those flowers to the same place in his living room uh, every uh, late summer and fall. We have to separate that from really more of his, his sense as a historian not to be, not to romanticize the past. Now, this is going to sound a little strange to listeners, because here you have a conservative intellectual historian who refuses to romanticize the past. I'd like to read to you just a little passage from his very famous essay, The Conservative Search for Identity. He says, conservatism, for good or ill, is the child of change as much as it is the child of tradition. From Burke on, it has combined conservative ideas with revolutionary politics and economics. Capitalism and personal freedom are the two most revolutionary ideas in modern society. Even more importantly, we live in a revolutionary society that will not be deflected from the course of change. Technologically and socially, we are in the grip of vast 
and constant changes. There is no turning back. Indeed, there has been no turning back in our dynamic Western society since the 10th century. Democracy and increasingly social and economic equality are the givens of the society in which we live. We have to adapt to that fact. So Tantzer is is very much a, a man on the lookout for modernity in his professional reading and his teaching and his, his, his essays at Philadelphia Society meetings. So he's not an anachronism in the professional sense, only more in the personal sense. That's a really striking paragraph that you've read. I wonder, how would the view of, of history and indeed of conservatism that Tanser had that's sort of reflected or uh, exemplified in that passage, how would it have differed from the views of historians in his hallway at Michigan, for instance? That's where he was certainly different. I don't know that he's so much an anachronism as just different. He certainly was aware of all of the trends in the 1980s. Of course, you had post-structuralism, you had deconstruction, you had Foucault, you had Derrida, Clifford Gertz, and the new cultural history that was breaking at that point. And he could run with the hares and hunt with the hounds. He had no problem talking about these things. But ultimately, he said, you know, he said, I just don't find the new theory so interesting to my work. Uh, It's not the quarry I wish to pursue. He found his own intellectual problems that he wanted to uh, pursue. And he got along with people like David Hollinger. In fact, when I was in Berkeley recently and and talked to David about Stephen Tonser, I asked him, I said, you know, watching you all, you, you all seem to get along just fine. And David said, of course we got along just famously. We, he was a great guy. But his work was different from ours. He was pursuing questions, problems, historical problems, that really the, the rest of us were not particularly interested in. He was not interested in sort of the professionalization pursuit at that point in his career. You know, as David said, he would go off, Tonser would go off and write his Emersonian essays and, you know, reach his audience. uh, And we would write for AHA and other, uh, you know, for the American Historical Review and other journals and reach our audiences. Um, David even speculated, he said, you know, Tonser is the type who probably would have been very happy at a denominational college somewhere in the provinces. That really would have been the place where he would have fit in well. That's probably a very apt observation. Tanser was big on the sort of intellectual conservative scene, right? He, he knew and often debated with people like William F. Buckley or Russell Kirk, right? Yes, he did. He debated all kinds of people. He Again, a fierce intellect is a great way to describe who he was. And he loved debate. I think his nature was somewhat contentious. He had a, you know, kind of famously a prickly personality. So debate was an extension, a natural extension of the type he was. What makes Stephen Tonser different from somebody like Russell Kirk is that Stephen Tonser refused to be a traditionalist for its own sake. Uh, he was also very hard on tradition, just as he was hard on, you know, so much of about modernity. But he he didn't then just run to embrace tradition for its own sake. And he could be critical of conservatives that he thought were too much inclined to look to the past. He called them the pressed flower version of conservatism, and he rejected it. He just thought that that was no way to 
bring up the rising generation, that they would have their battles to fight in modernity or post-modernity after the mid-1980s, and that we had to respect that. And to revert to a pressed flower form of conservatism would not save the day or be ultimately very attractive. I do think sometimes he thought Russell Kirk fell in that category. When you look at who he was with the other uh, conservatives, I think he fits in a very interesting place because there were a lot of hyphenated conservatives in the 1980s. We're aware, for example, of the anti-communists. We're aware of the libertarians, the economic conservatives, the social or the cultural conservatives. We're aware of how the Jewish neocons came in in the 1970s and then the evangelicals about the same time. And we're all brought together in the pages of William F. Buckley's National Review and also in Ronald Reagan's politics. Reagan and Buckley were fusionists who brought them together. Well, Tonser was interested in fusion as well, but he also had a very sensitive take on people who were perhaps a little outside of the circle. And this is where he got in his most, most trouble. There was a 1986 meeting of the Philadelphia Society. It occurred uh, in Chicago. It was in the Drake Hotel. It was in April. And he was asked to give one of the major speeches about what to do, how to define neocons. And he had test-driven his remarks with his very dear friend from Chicago, the conservative publisher, Henry Regnery, and also his wife and others, and everyone who heard his comments, everyone urged him, begged him, not to say the paragraph that I'd like to read to you. Are you ready? I, I think so. Go ahead. Okay, this is, this is what he said to the neocons, and it comes in two parts. It has always struck me as odd, even perverse, that former Marxists have been permitted, yes, invited, to play such a leading role in the conservative movement of the 20th century. It is splendid when the town whore gets religion and joins the church. Now and then she makes a good choir director. But when she begins to tell the minister what he ought to say in his Sunday sermons, matters have been carried too far. Well, now, that's the quotable tonser. That that little paragraph is quoted more than any other paragraph to get at tonser's view of the neocons, the Manhattan Jewish neocons, as the conservative movement often lumped them. But he added this, and it shows also how funny he could be. I mean, this, he's making people laugh when he says this. And I think that the next line or two are also very, very indicative of his sarcasm. He said, I once remarked to a friend at the Hoover Institution that had Stalin spared Trotsky and not had him murdered in Mexico, Trotsky would no doubt have spent his declining days in an office in the Hoover Institution writing his memoirs and contributing articles of a faintly neoconservative flavor to encounter and commentary. This is really, really sarcastic stuff. And Tonser's fusionist instincts totally fail him at this point, and there are, there are lots of reasons for that. But basically it comes down to he thought the conservative movement was betrayed when a lot of very thoughtful conservatives got caught up in power, were, were attracted to Washington, D.C. and the Reagan administration in the 1980s, and, and they basically became political hacks and left the cultural field behind. And if the neoconservatives were becoming big on the conservative scene generally, and certainly in the circles that Tonser would have run in, I mean, 
he would have been accused of something like anti-Semitism for a remark like that at a public event. Was he was he in trouble for that? Did he sort of get kicked out of the of the new movement because of that? Absolutely. He got himself in trouble because he refused to filter himself on this point. Not only did he alienate a number of the neoconservatives whose work oftentimes he appreciated. I, I've been at the Hoover Institution. I've gone through the back-and-forth letters that Tonser and the neocons exchanged in the wake of this, this uh, catastrophic uh, presentation of his. And he was accused of anti-Semitism for sure. And in fact, in the pages of National Review, they would periodically revive the charge that Tonser was anti-Semitic. Now, I'm a little skeptical of that charge. I mean, having sat in the classroom with him, you know, for a number of classes and having uh, had all those lunches with him and been in seminars with him and gone to Philadelphia Society meetings with him, he was he was not anti-Semitic. Uh, at the core, I think we can prove this if you look at his very first book that he always assigned in his intellectual history class, his, his basic introduction to intellectual history, always began with one of the great Jewish, European, German intellectual historians of the 20th century. Ernst Kassirer uh, was the dissertation advisor of Leo Strauss and was a remarkable Enlightenment mind, neo-Enlightenment mind of the uh, first half of the 20th century. Tonser loved his work. So Tonser, uh, it seems to me, was angry at the neoconservatives in a very particular context in the Reagan administration, thought they had sold out and were just attracted to the power, and it left the cultural field to progressives and liberals and and Marxists. And the larger point of whether this indicated he was anti-Semitic, I think, does not stand in light of the evidence, at least not the evidence that I've looked at. Well, it seems like on on this point as well, it seems like Tonser might have been at times pretty tone deaf to the the sort of emotional effects or even, indeed the intellectual effects that some of his commentary might have had on his fellow thinkers and writers and the conservative movement so I, he somewhat paradoxically described himself as as a liberal conservative as well as a reactionary even though you would suggest that you yourself would suggest that he wasn't in fact a reactionary so why would he why would he get up on stage and say something inflammatory in order to prove his point about the neoconservatives and why would he call himself a reactionary was he deliberately trying to be provocative and if so why or was he trying to make a was he trying to make a point oh yes as i said earlier he was pithy pertinent and provocative he loved to to sprinkle provocative statements through his sentences like a chef sprinkling habaneros on a steak. I mean, he just loved that. And he, he always knew that to keep his audience, he had to say things in such a way that they, you know, would be short enough to be read and interesting enough to be discussed later. So he, he always had a, a knack for making himself relevant to conversation. But to your point, the tragedy of Stephen Tonser is that he was tone deaf. The tragedy of Stephen Tonser was that he could be needlessly provocative. The tragedy of Stephen Tonser was that he could be prickly to the point of alienating some of the people around him who were in a position actually to be his ally and to fight for the same things he wanted to fight for. This is the tragedy we find, though, in all human beings. We all have our blind spots. We all have weaknesses that get the better of us sometimes when we're provoked. He was angry uh, with some of the decisions in the Reagan administration, and he took that anger out 
I think, in this particular uh, unfortunate speech, this catastrophic uh, discourse of his in the Drake Hotel in Chicago in 1986. Now, when you say Tonser very correctly refers to himself as a reactionary, what does he mean? Well, it's not a chronological or a temporal reaction. He's not seeking to turn back the clock. As that passage I read earlier suggested, we are moving forward. We are modern. In fact, he said back in the 80s, we are postmodern, and there's no going back even to modernity. For him, the reaction is more of a, I would call it a sociological and political uh, reaction, a concept of restoring order to disordered liberty. That's what he meant by reaction. So we're not going to, you know, be turning back the clock and try to be medieval or, you know, in the Jesuit schools of the 17th century. I mean, he, he would find that absolutely absurd. But there is a principle of reaction, and that principle looks at the chaos, say the the anarchy in, in politics or the licentiousness in, in, in a personal morality. Maybe too much of it has been tolerated. Maybe we've gone too far. Our, our cultural guardrails that the conservatives are always reminding us of have gotten in disrepair, and, and we're kind of driving off the cliff now. Reaction in the sense of restoring order, but it has to be an order that is true to our own time, an order that takes into account the lessons of modernity. That's why you confront modernity. You sift it. You test it. You take away the lessons of it, and you move forward. So it's a contradictory, a paradoxical concept that the reaction is, is fully embracing the fact that we're moving forward and only taking the principles forward with how we restore order to disordered liberty. I want to get at this notion of fusion because you've, you've brought it up a couple times and it seems like at that particular moment in, in which Tanser was sort of speaking and was at his, at his rhetorical highest point and perhaps his most provocative point, this fusion was happening among conservatives uh, with the rise of Reagan. These groups were sort of coming together in an effort to, to gain political power. And of course, probably because of a lot of the things that Tanser said, he was kept out of this fusion. Would you say that, that he, was, he wasn't he was sort of brought into the fold in the mid to late 80s um, because of some of his stances? I think that's true. Uh, his first foray into national politics actually occurs in 1969, shortly after Richard Nixon is inaugurated. It happens in 1969, in April of that year, when he is giving a speech, I believe, to the National Association of Manufacturers, and he's talking about the perils that higher education faced in 1969. You have to realize, of course, there were Vietnam protests. This was right on the eve of the Kent State about a year later, you know, uh, Kent State would uh, explode with a very tragic incident there in, in May of 1970. And Tonser was looking at disorder in the classroom. Uh, there, Hamilton Hall at Columbia University, the students occupying buildings and not allowing uh, the teaching to go on, to, not allowing the university to fulfill its mission. So he was giving this speech, and he was talking about what a restoration of the American university would look like. Well, somebody in the Nixon administration picked up that speech, took it back to Richard Nixon, and Nixon himself in 1969 said, this guy out there at the University of Michigan, Stephen Tonser, he's the one who's saying what our higher education policy should be. So Tonser, you know, was was getting the attention uh, that he he really merited uh, just through his, his discourse on these topics. But, uh, of course, 
that turned out to be a dog that wouldn't hunt. I mean, later, as uh, Nixon fell in disgrace, Tonser did not want to have any association with him whatsoever. In fact, I will say that there was a a particular individual in the Nixon administration who later became very prominent, and Tonser would just say, that son of a lied to me. That son of a lied to me. And, you know, saying that, you know, oh, Nixon was not uh, guilty of the crimes uh, at Watergate and did not deserve impeachment. Well, Tonser knew that was just balderdash. And he, so he, I think, retreated somewhat and went back to rediscover his joy of culture and art and uh, novels and using all the tools that intellectual historians use to make their case for what a climate of opinion was like at a certain time and who, who was a contradiction to their age at that time. Those are the things that absorbed Tonser, that he loved to think about. So he went back to culture and away from politics. And then everybody got excited again in 1979, 1980, as Reagan gets close to victory and people start talking, well, you know, if Reagan is elected, who gets to go to Washington? And Tonser backed a particular individual to go to the NEH, and um, to put it uh, briefly, uh, some of the neoconservatives won that argument and uh, chose somebody that, that I think some of the traditionalist conservatives thought was not the best person for that position. And then we start all over again with disappointment in the politics of conservatism, the politics of being in Washington, D.C., what he called the imperial city, as he said, you know, he was very dismissive. He warned me. I, I um, Shortly after I began studying with him, I had to make a trip to Washington, D.C., and he said, well, Mr. Whitney, um, you know, beware of the imperial city because it's where scholars go to die. And he also said, as for the conservative movement, when it put on a blue suit and went to Washington, D.C., it died. So he had very strong feelings toward the end of the Reagan administration. And yet, he remained involved in certain ways. He you know, was very supportive of, for example, Robert Bork in the Senate confirmation hearings, and he and Sidney Hook and a number of intellectuals lobbied Congress to uh, confirm Justice Bork. So there, were, you know, there was that push-pull with politics that he felt as a civically engaged, active American. The fusionism project for him, though, never quite came together. Uh, he admired fusionists like William F. Buckley Jr. and Frank Meyer. He admired a political fusionists like Ronald Reagan. But he neither had the temperament nor the, I think, the, um, the actual contacts, the friendships across sort of the lines of the factions of the conservative movement to make a powerful, powerful statement about fusionism, even though I know it was deep in him. You know, it's so interesting because last week, as you know, um, Brad Berzer came on and talked about how Russell Kirk sort of started his career writing about his distrust of politics and then sort of moved into politics, whereas it sounds like uh, Tanser started out not necessarily for politics, but certainly interested in engaging in the political process and being a part of it, and then moved away from politics and, and, and certainly grew to distrust it entirely, it sounds like. What do you make of this sort of shift? Perhaps it's a shift among some conservatives to become distrustful of of the ways in which power can corrupt, as, as Tanser's 
teacher Lord Acton uh, put it. So what, what what do you make of this? Does this prevent people like Stephen Tanser from just having any say in what goes on in Washington? They're just, they're distrust of the process entirely? Well, your question comes at a time in American history when we are asking a lot of questions whether there's going to be a new political realignment. And Tanser would argue that Prior to any political realignment, there must be a cultural realignment. The culture has to be conditioned in a way that supports sound, prudent public policy. Yes, Tonser uh, followed St. Augustine in being uh, wary of the libido dominandi, often used and often quoted Augustine there, beware of the disordered love of power, the libido dominandi. Freud also used that term. And like Lord Acton, you're absolutely right. He believed that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Lord Acton used to say, and Tonser could have adopted it as his own motto, always look for the cloven hoof. Always look for the cloven hoof. Uh, When people get in the proximity of power, they just sometimes fail to check themselves to do the right thing. Tonser always argued that it was important to be alive to custom and to institutions, constitutions, charters, laws, and those uh, statesmen that keep power in check. In fact, he would say that the entire founding generation of Americans did a pretty good job of that. Uh, He said that they succeeded more brilliantly than any other generation of human beings ever when it came to what to do with political power, how to disperse it, how to check it, how to balance it. So, Stephen Tonser, I think, was losing interest in politics for a long time because of his commitment to culture. But maybe even in politics, he did not go as far as he should have or could have. And and when I asked George Nash, the great conser- historian of the conservative movement, about that, George said, well, we were, we were all waiting for Steve to write his magnum opus. And so we tend to overlook him today. But perhaps... I would say, uh, and George and I talked about this, but perhaps uh, Stephen Tonser was writing for a remnant. Uh, This is a concept that Albert J. Nock back in a 1936 article in The Atlantic talked about, a remnant of people who are concerned with ordered liberty, constitutional government, a culture that preserves the true, the good, the beautiful, keeps those ideas alive. And maybe Tonser was writing for a remnant in the future that will read him and appreciate what he was trying to do and even be grateful to him. It's striking, Gleaves, that after all this time, about 30 years, you've chosen to start writing about Tonser. And it's striking that you bring up the current political situation. Is, is that why you've chosen to start writing about him because of, uh, of what's going on in Washington today? It's a little bit why I'm writing about him, but I would say the more proximate cause is that his death in January 2014 uh, made me really reevaluate who he was to me. This was a man that I studied under for four and a half years, very directly uh, influenced by him. Uh, When he died, uh, I was asked to write a reminiscence by one of the editors of the Michigan Review, and that started me to thinking about who he was to me. And I have to confess, I've thought about him every day of my career since I left Ann Arbor. And then um, after, I'd say, another four or five months, I got a note from his oldest daughter, and she wrote me to invite me to the funeral mass, the memorial mass, 
uh, in Jerseyville in June of 2014. And she wrote about two weeks before that uh, funeral mass and asked if, if I wanted to go, I'd be welcome. Uh, it was otherwise just for the family. Well, Stephen Tonser, it turns out, was my godfather, and so I thought that it was important that I go. And when I went to Jerseyville, Illinois, and uh, to the the Westwoods, where he uh, spent so much time as a boy and lived in that area for a few days the way he would have seen some of the things uh, that hadn't changed much, talked to his family, his his brothers, his sisters, his nieces and nephews, it really inspired me to go back and take a closer look at him. I knew him one way back in 1987 to 1991 or so, but I decided to go to the Hoover Institution in August of 2014 and really make a concerted effort to see things in him that I had not seen before. He and I had a difficult relationship. It was sometimes very lovely. Uh, He was a very generous man, but sometimes it was quite contentious, and he could be very sarcastic, and he could be hard on a student. So I had mixed feelings, and I felt this drive to try to get behind the more public man that we all knew. And so, you know, I've stayed in touch with several of his family members, including his widow, Caroline, who's just such a gracious person. She lives outside of Ann Arbor, and I go see her periodically. And I've interviewed probably 30 people now who knew Stephen Tonser uh, either as a student or as a colleague, and I'm just gathering as many anecdotes as possible. It turns out, of course, that he is very relevant to what's going on today. Uh, He would argue, and I think rightly, that the political problems that we have today ultimately are cultural problems, that to have the candidates that we have today reflects a decline in the culture. There has been a coarsening of culture. There's a crudeness in our culture that has lost the vision of politics as a once noble calling. I mean, how do we put the romance back into politics? That's the challenge we have today, and we're so far from that. And Tonser would call us to our best selves and and say it would have to start with reconstituting, uh, refurbishing our culture so that it is once more alive to the true, the good, the beautiful, dignity. These are the kinds of things that he proposed to get us out of this mess, and they would apply just as much now as they did in the 1980s. What would it take, Gleaves, to sort of reinvigorate the culture uh, in the terms you're describing, because I can I can certainly understand why, you know, sort of looking at someone like Donald Trump, he's he's vulgar and obscene, and he might be understood to directly reflect what you're getting at, it seems, which is this, the coarsening of culture. But then, of course, with the accusations against Clinton and the sort of political machine of the Democratic Party that I, I know Tanzer wrote about or would have been concerned with, how would he have proposed to reinvigorate the culture so as to produce politicians who the left and the right could both trust and, and, and sort of look to for a kind of a political, political integrity? Well, that's a great question because he was a Truman Democrat in the 40s and the 50s. When he came back from, as a combat veteran from World War II, he was described himself as a Truman Democrat and, and voted Democratic in uh, the presidential contests and in state races, and he changed his mind. He, as he used to say, one of the most important things you can discover about a climate of opinion is why people change their minds. And he's him, he himself is an interesting case study in that. I think it goes back to the remnant 
you ask what would be done, what could be done, what can people say at a university do or people are writing about the culture do, I, th- I think it goes back to that Albert J. Nock article in The Atlantic in 1936. Uh, Isaiah's Job is the title of the article, and Nock is writing for a remnant. He says, sometimes you face such large degradations in culture that you are powerless to fight against it by yourself. It's, it's swimming upstream against a terribly swift current that will take you under if you engage it directly. So maybe the better way is to go to the estuary, the rich estuary, anchor there in, in the richness of organisms, of life, of reality as it is most beautifully lived, of the contradictions, of the paradoxes of the human condition, and embrace those and write of an awareness in that rich estuary of experience out of the mainstream, right of the possibilities of a better time, not in a reactionary sense of turning back the clock, but in the reactionary sense of restoring order to a disordered liberty. And I think Tonser chose that route. When I go back and read his essays, they're beautiful essays, and sometimes I get the feeling that they're they really are cultivating almost a future generation, a rising generation that we don't see yet on the horizon, but a generation that will appreciate what he has done. He was very meticulous in what he left, the Hoover Institution archives. And in that sense, Joe, maybe he is very anachronistic because he was writing not for a past, but for a future. And very few conservatives understand that about him. Well, Gleaves, thanks uh, very much for talking with me about Stephen Tonser, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. That was our interview with Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center. The director of that center, producer of this podcast, and this week's guest is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground. <laughs>